I was telling people last night, my favorite one that he's told somebody recently, somebody was trying to explain some whiskey to him, some two-year-old stuff that this new disturber was making. And he asked him how much it was. It's a hundred something dollars. And he's like, well, that's a lot of money for some two-year-old stuff. Guy said, uh, well, you know, taste is subjective. And Jimmy looked at him real serious. He said, well, quality's not. (laughs) (laughs) This is Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon, bringing to you the best in news, reviews, and interviews with people making the bourbon whiskey industry happen. And I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Coleman. We all know that Wild Turkey is one of those premier brands in history. We've had the pleasure of having all the Russells on the show in previous years, and it's always heartwarming to have any member of that family on to share more stories. It's fun to hear the generational changes, and they talk about how bourbon has developed. And we had Bruce Russell on the show for the first time back in 2019 on episode 199, and that was with his cousin Joanne Street. But this time, Bruce joins the show alone to talk about his journey in these last few years. Bruce has shown tremendous growth in such a short period of time, and we get to know more about him and how his time as a global brand ambassador really immersed him into the company and the culture. We ask Bruce about the current whiskey market and how he is carrying on a legacy and how he thinks he's going to leave his everlasting stamp on Wild Turkey. Well, with that, enjoy this week's episode. And now here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. This week's idea comes from Twitter at Cloud9Sanch, at Cloud9Sanch, who writes me, why do some whiskeys change a lot in their nose and palate profile after some airtime in the bottle, while some don't? So there's a couple things here. One, it depends on when the last time the bottle had oxygen. If you're talking about a dusty You know, some of these dusties, they haven't been open for 50 to 100 years. So the time you crack that cork, that's the first time they've had oxygen. So you're looking at, definitely looking at something that is going to change with a little bit of oxygen, most definitely. If you have something that has been open for a long time, you just kind of left it out overnight, you know, you're looking at evaporation. You know, there's going to be some evaporation concerns. So, you know, those are a couple things that, you know, that can happen. Also with the glass, it depends on the humidity in the room. You can pour a glass of whiskey. And if you've got fans coming down from above, that will begin to evaporate within 30 minutes. So there is real evaporation that happens after you have poured it. And that can have an impact on it. So those are a few things that can change it that are pretty well known and pretty well proven. The other thing is, is that you change, you know, so you may taste a whiskey one day and it tastes completely different the next day. That's not the whiskey changing. That's you changing. It's kind of like you're in the mood for Chinese food one day and pizza the next. You know, our palate's ever changing. It's a fluid thing. That's why I'm always like, I try to taste three times on three different days to give a full comprehensive look of what my palate thinks about a whiskey. It can be said the same for people with what they're tasting in a certain moment. You're not always going to get the same tasting notes out of a bottle of whiskey. And those who are in the profession know that pretty well. You know, for someone just kind of getting into bourbon, it's a hard pill to swallow because you're like, ah, I always like this type of pizza. You know, well, it's different. It's just different. Your palate is not always acclimated for the flavor of a whiskey. 
And that's going to do it for this week's Above the Char. Hey, if you want to hit me up on Twitter, be sure to do so. I'm the one with the blue check mark. Just look for my name, Fred Minnick. Until next week, cheers. And they're off for another Get 270 2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at give270.org. Charitable gaming license ORG 0002703. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or TheBourbonConcierge.com, and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits, and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. Welcome, everybody. We're back with another episode of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon. Kenny, Ryan, and Fred all here today in the HQ talking to somebody that has been on the show. I don't think we've had a dedicated show to our guest today, but we've had plenty of interactions with not only him, his dad, Mimi, his grandpa, right? So we've had a lot of interactions with just the Wild Turkey family. And this is what I love. I love being able to bring on the good personalities behind some of these heritage brands that people know and love and can I, you know, can connect with more. Yeah, we should have, gosh, what was it, like five or six years ago, we were dumbasses and we brought all our recording equipment into uh, Russell's pick. And we were like moving around the warehouse with microphones and wires, like trying to do a barrel pick, talking to Eddie and Jimmy. And, and it was like, so I'm glad we're, you came to Louisville and did it here. <laughs> this and easier part, on us. Because that was like a nightmare. It was. It was a nightmare. <laughs> and, and, you know, I think we've all hung out with Bruce several times. I can't think of how many times I, I've had whiskey with them in a, in a warehouse or in New Orleans. And I'll be on my best behavior to not uh, bring up things I shouldn't. Oh, <laughs> oh you got some stories? Got blackmail. You got stories. <laughs> Well, hopefully we'll get into maybe just a little bit of that. But <laughs> he's, he's probably just got much shit on you. <laughs> yeah. So you better be careful. Yeah. There's a lot of things that happen Especially on Bourbon Street. New Orleans, let me tell you now. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go ahead and introduce him. Today on the show, we have Bruce Russell. He's the brand educator. He's also a blender. He does some stuff with the Private Barrel Program over at Wild Turkey. So Bruce, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. Yeah, man. So we haven't talked to you in a, quite a long time and kind of had a show dedicated to just you. So I guess let's give people a little bit of background more about where sort of like you came from. You know, of course, you're Eddie's son. I think everybody kind of understands that part. But what was sort of like your growing up into the industry 
And did you know that you were going to get into whiskey? Like it was a, kind of like ingrained in your DNA. Did you think that I'm going to try to veer off and do something else in my life for a little bit? Kind of talk about that. Yeah. So for most of my life growing up, I didn't want to be in the industry necessarily. It wasn't like I hated it or anything. It's just, I lived in Lawrenceburg. Lawrenceburg, when I was growing up, was like five to 7,000 people. I think it's like 10,000 maybe now. I think you got two stoplights there now? <laughs> yeah. Well, we got the big Walmart, you know, on the highway. <laughs> so. A couple Mexican restaurants. Yeah, we do have a lot of, <laughs> and they're great. I lived in a, a small town where we had Four Roses and Wild Turkey in the same town. So kind of half of the people I knew worked in a distillery. And so it was just kind of a normal thing. I just knew Jimmy was everybody's boss because he had the big, nice office, like a huge Mad Men-esque style office back then. With and a couch that, and everything for afternoon naps. That's stuff. right, yeah. <laughs> had, had some like whiskey back there, some of that old like 108 rare breeds sitting back there he could sip on during the day. And and dad had to wear a union uniform, so I knew he was not the boss. Um, <laughs> I was talking to some folks last night. Even when I was growing up, for the most part, whiskey wasn't that great, so it wasn't, you know, there were more opportunities elsewhere to leave Lawrenceburg and do other things. And when I first went to school, my freshman year, I actually came up here to University of Louisville and was uh, trying to get into the speed school of engineering. I wanted to be a robotics engineer, which kind of piddled around in school, ended back up at the University of Kentucky. Didn't really know what I wanted to do. I was actually coaching high school basketball for a little while. I mean, you're in Kentucky. It, it makes sense. Yeah. Are you pretty good at 2 on 2 I'm like most Kentucky kids, I feel like. Better than your average person just because you grow up doing it your whole life you, you know play a hell of a game of 21 yeah exactly <laughs> tip in uh, beat me at pig yeah, yeah. um but then when i was 21 dad convinced me to get a summer job out at the distillery he's like you'll be great at it you love talking to people you grew up in this they'll eat it up that you know you're my son you're jimmy's grandson i fell in love with it pretty quickly but being kind of like the way dad and jimmy are dad waited until the end of that summer because he wanted me to stick through the summer and see if I would and, you know, show up to work and do what I was supposed to do. And then he took me around the distillery one afternoon for probably four or five hours. And I mean, you all probably know a little bit better than everybody else, especially Fred, because he's been in situations with dad quite a few times. Dad's really not quite like Jimmy. And even in home, he's less like that. He's not as uh, extroverted. He's not as gregarious as Jimmy, you know, he's pretty quiet. Just wants to sit down and watch his TV shows or something like that. What he wants to be doing is playing with his dogs or mm -hmm. golfing or fishing, hanging out with my uncle. My brother's had two kids, so he's he's been everybody's favorite grandpa right now. But he just likes kind of a quiet home life. He's kind of a homebody. We've always been pretty close, but the four hours was probably double what we had talked our entire lives, you know, up to that point. And I was like, man, I kind of got to meet my dad for the first time. That's super cool to see this other side of him, him being super passionate about something, which I'd never seen really before. And kind of the same thing with Jimmy. Like Jimmy is not just who he is on the road. There is another side to him at home, but getting kind of meet Jimmy and dad and know exactly who they are and all of who they are. It was so cool to me. That's kind of the reason I stuck around to be honest. And then eventually I kind of fell in love with the whole operation and I couldn't see doing anything else now. I can wow. see where you get that because like a lot of people just give everything during the day, you know, with their careers and they come home and they, you know, they're exhausted, you know, the, and so they're necessarily not fully present or fully there because they, you know, put in a hard work day, but that's cool that you got to see them in their element, you know, and connect with them that way as well. Yeah. It really blew me away because like I knew everybody fond over Jimmy because people back home do and not even because of the distillery stuff. He was like this world-class athlete in high school. And he's also just like him and my grandma are pillars of that community. He used to keep the score clock for all the basketball games and they're the people. And if 
you all grew up in small towns. You know people like this. If there's a girls' middle school soccer game and Anderson County's playing, they'll be there to support like the local teams and stuff. Mm -hmm. So people love them. And so I kind of knew people made over him and that he was special to certain people. But I still remember the first time I ever saw him do like a real serious speaking engagement. It was upstairs at Silver Dollar. And it was for some type of a bourbon group. It was when I first started. So it had been right, right around like 2011, 2012, I think. He had people laughing and crying and he was like making fun of people. And I'd never seen him do that. And I was like blown away. I was like, oh, now I get why people come to this store and they're like, it was so cool to meet you. Because I was like, why do they think it's cool to meet Mimi? You know, like <laughs> he had no idea he was a stand up comedian until that time. No. And I've taken a lot of like my bit that I do is a lot of it's just stolen from Jimmy because he's as good as I've seen doing that stuff. Yeah, he's pretty quick-witted on a lot of those things, too. Yeah, and he's still sharp. He'll still sit in the visitor center, and I was telling people last night, my favorite one that he's told somebody recently, somebody was trying to explain some whiskey to him, some two-year-old stuff that this new disturber was making, and he asked him how much it was, and it's a hundred and something dollars, and he's like, well, that's a lot of money for some two-year-old stuff. Guy said, uh, well, you know, taste is subjective, and Jimmy looked at him real serious. He said, well, quality's not. <laughs> <laughs> and he's still got all those oh, like, funny little one-liners, you know. He's the best at that. Zing. <laughs> yeah, and he's really the guy, too, that you hear the the governors and the mayors and the KDA talk about how 90 95% of the world's bourbon is made here and the rest is counterfeit. That came from Jimmy. Jimmy was the first to, like, use that, you know, it's not bourbon, it's Kentucky bourbon. And and I remember having him, this is prior to you getting in the in the business, I remember him being on stage, you know, he was talking about it's not bourbon unless it's from Kentucky. I was like, do I correct Jimmy on this? Do I, you know, I was like, I ain't fucking telling him. I'm not correcting Jimmy on that. But he's got such a passion for quality bourbon. And he's it's still there today. He's still yeah. he's at the visitor center pretty much every single day still. Yeah. And the lines are still out the door to yeah. take pictures, People get signed go, bottles. Yeah, they'll go buy a bottle. Somebody had a coaster sign, get their coaster signed the other day when we were there. Was his, like, heart, <laughs> his heart is there, you know, with his fellow distillers, you know, like he loved Booker No. He loved Parker. You know, those were like his brothers. And when he talks about them, his eyes light up and what I noticed, like y'all's family, you all love each other, and that's like I, I don't understand that because you don't. Understand I, I don't how understand how a family can all love each other as much as you all do. Because I remember meeting his brother when he was getting honored by the KDA. You know, his brother had passed away since, and he pulled me aside. He's like, "I understand you're interested in him about bourbon, but you don't understand how special Jimmy is." And I was like, "This was his brother tearing up talking to me." about Jimmy. And so like, to me as a man, you know, raising two boys and I look up to that. I look up to that because it's, it's amazing what he has done as a human being beyond bourbon. I think the thing that I've taken from Jimmy and hopefully continue to apply, and I think dad does a good job of this. Jimmy, even though he loves being the center of attention and stuff, he still has like a humbleness to him. And I think that like him and his brother's brother's name was Dickie. He did recently pass. He lived out in Graffenburg, Kentucky. They both grew up right there in Lawrenceburg, but they grew up poor, you know, like a lot of people did back then. And I think Jimmy feels very lucky to be where he's at because he really is like he's a right place at the right time guy. Luckily for the company, he was really good at what he did, but he started as a 19-year-old kid. The guy that was in charge made our whiskey before Prohibition, came back after, passed away just around a decade after Jimmy started. And we were still family owned at that time, I think by the Gould brothers. 
they just kind of got stuck with Jimmy, whether they wanted to or not. And Jimmy was like around 30 years old and then was plant manager and master distiller, all those things at once. And thank God he was good because if he wasn't good at what he did, the story would have went under pretty quick. Yeah, I was about to say, it's kind of hard to put yourself in those shoes. I mean, you're probably close to the same age now. It's I'm actually like, older than he was when he was named master distiller. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty big pretty big thing to kind of think about. Yeah. yeah. And when Pernod Ricard was acquiring Wild Turkey, it was in their negotiations that Jimmy had to come along with a distillery. And I, to be honest with you, I'd never heard that before. You never hear about, you know, someone acquiring a company and they specify in their contract, your contractual obligations that, you know, someone comes along with it. Yeah. Aqua yeah. hires, maybe aqua hires before aqua hires were a thing. Yeah. Yeah. It was funny. I was having this, that discussion with someone a few days ago about master distillers and like non-competes and this and that, because they do hold like so much of your brand and like this, mm -hmm. you know, the, the recipes, the stories and whatnot. It's crazy with your all's family and, you know, Campari owns you all and stuff, but how you've been kind of like the brand of wild Turkey or the face of wild Turkey, whereas like the beams or other brands, you know, the Shapiro's, there are like the actual ownership of the, the brand. Talk about how it's different for you all and, that scenario versus having started the distillery and actually being your family thing. There is like a little bit of a difference there. So a lot of what Jimmy kind of has preached to me and dad, especially before like the last five, 10 years, now that a bunch of other stuff has blown up, but it was always like, we're carrying on a, a tradition. We're carrying on a legacy. And that legacy is not his legacy. It's Bill Hughes, the guy that taught him. And then the original Rippy family, you know, we're just trying to continue on something that Jimmy really believed in. And so there's a part of it that you do take a lot of pride that we just kind of get to be uh, the caretakers of this awesome thing that even though we didn't start, like, we definitely don't want to screw it up. I don't want Jimmy to haunt me forever. <laughs> um, but I do think there's something a little bit different because I was talking about the original Russells and how special that was. It wasn't really that it was like, had Jimmy's name on it. It was that it was something that dad created for Jimmy and it was their thing, right? Wild Turkey is not our thing. It is our thing because it, you know, puts the food on the table and I love Wild Turkey. It's awesome base product. It'd be a problem if you didn't. Yeah, it would be. Yeah, <laughs> true. Well, it tells of the cocktail. You said on stage, you said Jack was better in Coke than uh, Wild Turkey. Remember that? Yeah, I still believe that. I think that I don't know if they meant to do that originally, but I think like and, the DNA of Jack and the DNA of Coke, they just married perfectly. They, they and your dad, your dad like came up to me afterwards like, boy, we got some work to do. That <laughs> <laughs> That's why, you know, when I was growing up, anytime I had turkey, and well, growing up, I meant when I was 21 <laughs> uh, and older, it was like, you know, turkey and Mountain Dew. That's That was the Lawrenceburg thing. So, yeah. Well, so kind of talk a little bit about now that, you know, you're starting to get way more in the business because you came in and you were doing a lot of stuff on the brand development side. I know one of the first times we talked, you were doing a lot of traveling, going around. And was that more or less you getting more integrated with the brand, understanding how to tell the stories, getting in front of the general public and making a name for yourself? Like kind of talk about that part of your life. Yeah. So I graduated school and I was just kind of working at the distillery under dad and Jimmy and had learned a bunch from them, you know, how to grow the yeast and how to watch fermenters and tell if they're good or bad. You know, Jimmy was doing his whole, you're going to spend a week here with me and we'll do a week here. And then a brand manager at that time, he was over the Russell's brand. He came to me and said, hey, would you like to be a brand ambassador? We think that'd be a great move for you. 
And I was like, well, I don't know. I'm kind of like what I'm doing at the distillery. And then he explained what being a brand ambassador was. And I was like, that doesn't sound like a job. I'm on. Like, <laughs> let's I mean, do it. I get to go travel and eat and drink. Okay. Yeah. Well, and I'm somebody like, I'm very, very lucky to have grown up with a family. Like both my mom and dad made it a point to like, take me and my brother to places outside of Lawrenceburg. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'd been to California and New York and Florida and Chicago. We've been to major cities and spent time there. And they'll take us to cool places to eat in cool, like real local neighborhood places. So me and my brother got to see quite a bit growing up. So it wasn't a complete shock, but I'd spent most of my life either living in Lexington or Lawrenceburg. I got to move to Austin, Texas. I was traveling to LA and New York. And you know, when you're a part of a big brand, you're eating at world-class restaurants and staying in crazy cool hotels. Yeah. yeah. It was probably the coolest four or five years of my life because it changed me. And I tell people this all the time. I think the coolest thing about this new influx of consumers, it's changed me and my family in a good way. Dad and Jimmy will talk about this for the first 20 something years. Jimmy was on the road traveling. He only talked to people that looked like him, old white dudes from the South. And now, you know, you have every type of person under the sun from 21 and up, like whiskey's cool. And Jimmy and dad getting to travel around and meet all different types of people and hear their stories and see how much they love what we do. I do. I think it completely changed kind of, it changed our life. And it's an awesome thing. I've got to meet my best friends in the world and got to do things that I would have only have dreamt about growing up in Lawrenceburg. My buddies see what I do and they're like, that's insane that they pay you to do that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, can I have a job too? Or you were a Marriott guy or a Hilton guy? What was your Marriott reward? There you go. Nice. Yeah. Oh, about the airline? Uh, Delta. Delta. Yeah. You're in the South. It's got to be Delta. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was, let's see. It's people that are globe trotters. They always have. They stick with one brand, even though if it's out of their way, you know, you got to drive another mile or something to get to yeah. a Marriott. You'll go stay at the Marriott. Oh yeah. Or, I'll do that connection in Atlanta if I have to, even yeah. if there's a direct, because I'm flying <laughs> Delta. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I'd be curious to hear from like Jimmy and your dad, like what it was like when bourbon wasn't so exciting, so cool, how hard it was to like go to a store and maybe a few people show up versus like now you come to something, you know, everybody's showing up. They're excited. Jimmy talks about it sometimes. He'll say, you know, I had to make my own event. He would show up at a liquor store and thank God it was Jimmy doing it and not some of the other people that had traveled that expect, you know, that's how it kind of is. You expect people to come up to you now and want autographs and take pictures. Jimmy would just walk around liquor stores. And like, hey, how you doing? I make wild turkey, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Let me tell you about it. Not and so that, much a, a secret shopper at that point. He's just like, I'm going to tap you on the shoulder and tell you the story. Yeah, and that's what it was. Like, he had to do that because people wouldn't come in to see him. And to see how it's changed now is up in Ohio earlier this year. We did a private barrel release through the Ohio government. And there was a giant eagle in Columbus that I would guess probably 400 people in a line before the event started. There's not even, I don't know if they know the math. There's not 400 bottles in a barrel. Uh, <laughs> so they all didn't get one. But to see how it's changed, yeah, it's nuts. Jimmy will say a lot. Like I've been here 70 years and 50 of them weren't good as far as the business. It was good in the very beginning and then it's been good here in the last 10, 15 years, maybe a little longer. But I'm glad I didn't get to do it. I got to start in 2011. Things were already pretty good. Yeah, I was about to say, even in, since 2011, what have you seen that's changed just in, gosh, a decade? I would say the level of knowledge and education from our normal consumer is exponentially higher. It used to be you only had, you really did only have kind of a handful of, if you wanted to know something about bourbon, you needed to go to like a Michael Veach or something, you know, and that would be the only person around that would know, you know, you'd have a handful of people like that. But not Fred Menick. No, and not. Nobody wants to talk to him. <laughs> not going to give him credit, you know. <laughs> it's got too many 
stories about you. <laughs> but, yeah, that's right. But no, now like we would know who somebody like Fred is, right? Because we're in the industry. But now buddies of mine that aren't even in, they'll be like, hey, I saw this thing that Fred Minnick said it was good. Or I was reading this uh, thing online or I was watching this. There's, I feel like 100,000 YouTube channels now where they just review bourbon and American whiskey. And I think that's super cool because regardless of whether I'm watching specific channels or not, just the fact that people are so into it and they want to know what's going on, they want to be educated about what they're consuming and they're super excited about it. That's the coolest thing to me is this level of people really want to be involved in the brands they consume now. Mm. And that can only help us and most of the other big guys in Kentucky because we have legitimate stories. Like we've been around. We've got people like Jimmy who will tell you the history over a four hour, you know, visit at the visitor center if you'll sit there and let him. Hell, you got. I love that. You got one media guy just covers wild turkey, you know, DJ over there, yeah. you know, yeah. Rarebird. Shouts out David. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's incredible. You know, got a but, new book out, by the way. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Wild Turkey Musings. Yeah. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I'll be honest with you, it's frustrating for me because I do love me some turkey, but uh, you all change your damn packaging. I feel like every five friggin' minutes. You're telling me. <laughs> <laughs> You're telling me. Well, it's one of those things. If people are actually in the industry, they know this. There's just a lot of turnover in the industry. And I think some of that, if you see a company go through package changes, especially a company that's doing pretty well, I think a lot of that is just, you know, you get new people in and they want to put their stamp on the brand. And so the easiest way to do that, because Jimmy will cut them if they try to change the liquid, the easiest way to do that is through packaging or marketing and advertising. And I don't think that we've had a package on the wild turkey side. We probably haven't had a package longer than two or three years in a row now. They just keep changing it a little bit at a time. I like the new package, so I hope they stick with it. Yeah, I feel that what they did with the new 101, everything is changing. I mean, you see Heaven Hill taking off their house brands and trying to put it into a more elevated space. The same thing happens with 101. This people used to look at it as, you know, the $14 thing that you want to shoot to have yeah. a good time with. Yeah. And now it's starting to change where people are and liquor stores are trying to sell this as like, no, this is a value brand. This is a, a good 20 something, 30 something dollar value brand that you should be able to have, but you want to have the packaging look like it. You necessarily don't want to have a plastic bottle of screw cap and think like this is high quality stuff. You got to make something that is going to drive the consumer towards. And I think too, like when you look at Wild Turkey, they had so many campaigns that targeted things like biker bars and like tough guy mentality. And I got to imagine some of the new marketing and even the packaging. I'm giving you a little business about that. But all those little things are probably in some ways to get away from that old school marketing. And there's got to be a demographic where you no longer have to worry about pictures of Jimmy flipping people off. If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon, the farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S.com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> uh, a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, 
Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And you can get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for $1 per month trial period at shopify.com bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com bourbon. Targeted things like biker bars and like tough guy mentality. And I got to imagine some of the new marketing and even the packaging. I'm giving you a little business about that. But all those little things are probably in some ways to get away from that old school marketing. And there's got to be a demographic where you no longer have to worry about pictures of Jimmy flipping people off, you know, popping up. You know? <laughs> That's always a good one to see, though. When it yeah, comes up. it is okay. pretty funny. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, that, that was purposeful, I think, because that's how the parent company at that time thought that they could keep us afloat is by being yep. at the Sturgis bike rally or being at NASCAR events. Or I'm sure we paid a, a pretty penny to be the whiskey of choice in a lot of those Soprano shows. You know, we wanted to be seen as kind of that big macho brand. And the problem with that is I think it helped perpetuate this idea that wild turkey is like rough or mm -hmm. that you know it, it's something that you take shots of or you drink as much as you possibly can out of that bottle and it's funny now because when you look at some of the brands that i think people go the craziest for on the secondary market like the bottles from the 80s and my favorite things are probably just vintage 80s one-on-one or old vintage old granddad mm-hmm and the quality of those liquids and to see kind of what people thought of those brands there for about 10 or 20 years and, and kind of the connotation on those brands as just like bottom shelf, you know, shots. Rock good stuff, yeah. It was some of the best liquid that was in the market. It's just people didn't realize it and we didn't really market it that way. But in their defense, the consumer that's drinking our product now, they didn't drink American whiskey at that point. So they had to figure a way to keep us afloat. Yeah, it always pains me back in the days when I used to buy those Dusties online. It's like, all right, this is $400. It's like, but there's a price tag on it. It says $8.99, right? <laughs> it's like, oh, that pains. One of my favorite bourbons of all time was the Octagon bottle of turkey, the eight-year-old 101. Oh, my God, it was so good. I don't know if I've seen that one. I've had quite a few of the, the eight-year and then, of course, the, what was the cylindrical one? The Spirit, the donut? donut donut oh yeah donut, yeah i was drinking some of that last night yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's good stuff too donuts awesome and it's it's one of those things like a lot of people think jimmy was kind of like and he was in certain ways especially production wise he stuck in his ways like he never changed mm -hmm. but if you actually look at a lot of the stuff that jimmy did back in the day he did a lot of really cool stuff before we ever did he was doing private barrels like way back in the 60s and 70s that nobody knows about because they just needed to sell liquid so he would do these like cool private barrels for like horse farms and stuff there's one called spinthrift that you can see sometimes online that we made jimmy will be like i didn't make that and i'm like here's a picture of you handing the guy the bottle <laughs> <laughs> you're shaking you're shaking hands with the guy yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, thumbs up he's a man who holds to his nda <laughs> that's right yeah he, he takes a company very man 
he did the one of the very first, if not the first, like flavored whiskey product in '76 with the wild turkey liqueur and with honey. And then the donut series is, I still think, the coolest thing we ever did because it was a series of single barrel barrel proof releases. So each of them's a different proof. Each of them tastes a little bit different. It's just so cool, and it's funny because he, you know, he did that over 20 years ago, and that's something like right now the company would be like, well, that's a little out there. You know, we don't know if we we'd be able to do that. It'd be weird to try to like market it and package it. Jimmy was doing it, but a lot of that is just he was desperate for anybody to drink his just liquid. Somebody, you know? please, please buy my stuff. Yeah. You all also develop markets for bourbon, like you all developed the Australian market when people were kind of just like dipping their toe in it a little bit. You know, the Australian market was, you know, while a lot of brands were focusing on Japan, you guys focused on Australia. And now that's a blossoming bourbon industry that Wild Turkey really created. Yeah. Like most every other distillery that was around back in the late 80s into the 90s, Japan was big for us, but Australia has has been a huge market for us now for a very long time. I was just actually on a virtual thing with them, teaching a little bit about some new products. We're actually getting rid of the 13-year-old export, and we're going back to the old-school 12-year one-on-one. And for the first time ever, it's going to be available in liquor stores in Australia. So I was getting hyped that up to them. But just, it's so cool because that consumer base, they love whiskey Mm -hmm. as much as anybody else in the world. But because they're so far away, they don't get a lot of the ambassadors. They don't get the distillers over there as much as everybody else. So they're just so thirsty for knowledge. So anytime you get to talk to them, they're so excited to just talk about like one-on-one, right? We're here in the States. Everybody's like, hey, you got Russell's 13 or, uh, (laughs) you know. Do you have a... Uh, I heard about this guy on a YouTube channel that named Master his best Keith. whiskey. Yeah. <laughs> or, uh, you know, they want the super limited. Or even now, my I got buddies that'll come over and they're like, you got the new Master's Keep yet? Like lab samples. It's like, no, you're not getting that. Uh, <laughs> well, 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 I'll take... Good friends. I'll take Perth if you need somebody to talk there 101. You go, yeah. you know, I'll go Perth, Sydney or somewhere. Nice. Because, uh, yeah, they're just happy to talk about like 101 or we sell RTDs there that we don't sell anywhere else, like pre-made yeah. bourbon and Cokes. And over there, they go crazy for them. Dad thinks they're nuts. Every time he goes over there, he does the old like Kentucky couponing thing. He's like, y'all are silly. Y'all pay, it's like 40 something dollars or whatever. I don't know exactly, but 40 something dollars for six pours. He was like, how much is a handle? I'm going to be like, I don't know, $50 or whatever. And he's like, how much is a two liter of Coke? They're like $2. He's like, what are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) Those products are huge over there. And yeah, they, they just are like so excited to talk about anything American whiskey. It's fun. That consumer base is just a ton of fun. I'm hoping to get over there in the next couple of years. And it seems like Turkey too. It, when I go international anywhere, it's it's always been, but Turkey's there also. And is that as a result of with Campari or something? Because, you know, in Mexico or Europe, it's like you already have a presence there, whereas a lot of brands don't. I think part of it is Campari. I think part of it's Jimmy. Jimmy traveled the world before anybody else really did. Even before like Booker was traveling around, Jimmy was kind of the first one. And then people started to kind of emulate what Jimmy was doing. But he's been everywhere in the world. I mean, he's been every continent but Antarctica. And he'll tell me, like, he's like, I've been in the middle of nowhere and talked to two people. And, you know, he's also been in Tokyo where you have a 200-person bar and 700 people show up to pack in there and just hear him speak. And everywhere he would go, y'all know this because y'all know Jimmy. He's like the NBA player that stays after the game two hours and signs all the autographs. Like, that's who Jimmy is. He will sit there and talk to every single person and he's also the type of person, he'll meet somebody he hasn't seen in six years. They'll come over here and they'll be like, hey, good to see you again, Jimmy. And Jimmy will stare at him for a second and be like, 
I met you at that liquor store in Peoria. You got that son, Bryce. How's he doing in, in Little League or whatever, you know? And the kid's graduating college by that point. <laughs> but he's so good at that. And I think that that's made a huge difference for us in a lot of these other markets because Jimmy's just not going over there to do an appearance. He's going over there to really like meet people and share his stories. And there's not a person that's ever met him and has gone out with him because I'm sure this happened to Fred before that they're like, man, I tried hanging out with your granddad and I had to go to bed at two. And then I saw him up for breakfast at six. Yeah. I don't like. <laughs> so when you joined the company and you kind of got your feet wet and then maybe got some confidence in like saying, okay, here's where we are today. What can I do as Bruce Russell to kind of put my footprint on this brand and, and our legacy? Have you thought about that or what steps are you taking to do that? No, that's why his, his name's on Instagram is Russell's Rag Guy. <laughs> that's right. No, uh, I have thought of that. The rye thing's kind of weird because, I mean, it's not weird. It, it's just, I loved rye from the very beginning, to be honest. And I think when I was like at University of Kentucky in Lexington, I'm trying to hang out with people that are kind of like me and my dumb buddies from back home, you know, getting in trouble. And I found that like bartenders are very similar to the people that I was hanging out with, you know. I like hanging out late at night, hanging out in bars, drinking one-on-one rye and cheap beer. It's still probably my go-to at a lot of bars here in Louisville. I just kind of fell in love with that product. And I saw how much the bartending community kind of loved our rye whiskey. And it was also at the same time that like bullet rye was becoming a thing. And it was just kind of trendy for the first time. And I was like, man, this is kind of cool. And then I kind of fell in love with it because as I started right around like traveling around like 2015, 16, 17, a lot of the new mom and pops you'd see across the country, like, cause rye whiskey doesn't take as long to age. A lot of them had rye whiskey. And I started thinking like, man, this is so cool. And then Got to go to like Willet for the first time years ago and, and try some stuff with Drew over there and kind of fell in love with what they were doing. And I, I knew then like, oh, rye something cool. But I think beyond just like really pushing more rye whiskeys, like Rare Breed Rye, it's probably my favorite thing that we make day in, day out over at Turkey now. I think that my job or like kind of what I want to do is to continue on what Jimmy's built, but take kind of advice and Jimmy doesn't like the word trend, so I won't say trend, but just kind of take what I've learned from my peers, so the two or three newest generations of drinkers, and find out what they want and how we can meet their wants and needs through the wild turkey style. I'm never going to get away from, you know, the old 75, 13, 12, or the yeast strain that we've had since probably the 1890s, or the way, you know, we like six to 12-year-old whiskey. And then somebody be like, I love that whatever your son made. And he said, I didn't make it. I like six to 12 year old whiskey. <laughs> you know, I, I don't want to get away from that kind of Jimmy style, but I think that we can make a lot of cool, innovative, exciting things using that. So fellas, I don't know if you just realized what happened there, but in the course of my career, the amount of times that Eddie and Jimmy told me they wouldn't tell me their mash bill, uh, <laughs> I, I can't I can't even count. And like Eddie was like, which way are you going to try and ask me today what my mash bill is? There we go. Just, and Bruce, I didn't even ask him. Bruce just let it rip. We just got to go a generation later. That's all it takes. <laughs> That's right. Well, it still cracks me up because every now and then somebody will ask Jimmy, because the bourbon mash bill is pretty easy to find, but there's actually conflicting information on the raw mash bill. <laughs> They're usually pretty close. But people come in and they'll tell Jimmy the mash bill and he'll say, who told you that? And they'll <laughs> First say, oh, did. No. Yeah, sometimes. But a lot of times they'll be like, I Googled it. And Jimmy will just shake his He's like, I hate Google. <laughs> <laughs> so the other thing I think about this, you know, you talk about the legacy and I want to talk about a little bit at the top of the show. You kind of said that you're 
getting in and dabbling in a little bit in the blending side of things. So kind of talk about how you are taking everything that you're learning, leeching off of your dad and your granddad and figuring out how do you learn how to like make a product at the end of the day. Yeah. So they both have very different styles of teaching. Jimmy is the type of teacher or leader or parent that is going to let you fall, right? He's going to let you scrape your knee and then watch you as you pick yourself up and then dust yourself off. And then if if you're really hurt, he'll come over there, you know, but he's that kind of teacher. And so a lot of what I've tried to learn from him is just through observation and trying to do stuff with him around and then get feedback from him. Dad's way more generous with his knowledge. He really will hold my hand as I do things and try to teach me as I go along. And that's really what I've been doing the last two or three years. One of the coolest things about kind of the the world shutting down, even though 99.99% of it was awful, I got to spend a lot of time with dad. We spent a lot of time in the lab and being able to like get in there and pick his brain of what he really likes, like what he thinks of. And then just like language is extremely important. I bet Fred knows this because he he judges all of these competitions. I might taste peach, Fred might taste apricot, but we have to figure out how to tell each other we're tasting the same thing, right? That shared language and Mm -hmm. learning dad's language was super cool to me because it like flipped a switch for me. Oh, this is what he's talking about when he says he likes the journey or he likes the sweet up front. These are the flavors that he actually looks for. This is what he's into. This is why he thinks these ages work and trying to pick up on that stuff. And then to be honest, him and we've got a great guy named Norm Mattella that's in charge of our product development over there at Campari. And they've just been like, hey, do you have any ideas or do you want to do anything? And we'll do them and we'll try and we'll see what happens. And the first thing that I really was hands on with was probably the Rare Breed Rye. And then now the the Russell's 13 with the team and the Master's Keep we've got coming out this year is going to be a bourbon and rye blend that we're doing the the final stuff on probably next week. It's really reinvigorated me in this job. It's not that I was like, bored or anything you just kind of do the same thing every day you just kind of get complacent i guess you're like how many four-star hotel five-star hotels and <laughs> five-star meals can i eat uh, <laughs> it's I more like so much foie gras yeah, yeah when you have filet mignon every night it gets boring <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, i know what you mean by that. it's really like how many times do i have to see people like y'all come in and get private barrels you know uh, <laughs> exactly <laughs> gotta deal with these jerk offs again but uh getting to see a product out there Like the Russell 13 is a perfect example. Rare Breed Rye is a perfect example. Hopefully the two new things we got coming out this year will, but like to help do a thing. And I used to be like, who cares about the score in this magazine or who cares what this person says? Oh, once you start blending though, that insecurity keeps up. (laughs) I'm like elbowing down. I'm like, do you see that got a 95? You know, that's pretty cool, right? Because I had a hand in doing it or to go to an event and have people come up to you and be like, hey, that thing that you did was the best thing that I had at this event. That's cool. And it really has. It's reinvigorated me. It, it's, it makes me like hungry to get in the lab and do stuff and come up with, because I think one of the coolest things about Campari as a parent company, they have zero history before us in American whiskey. And we're the only American whiskey distiller that does our type of thing that they have. And so they're open to suggestion, I think, in a way that a lot of other big companies wouldn't be we can come up with something that we think is going to be cool and fun and delicious. And most of the time they're like, okay, let's try it out. And that's been a ton of fun. And I think that in the next few years, you'll see, I think dad's really in like, he's in a good pocket right now where he's excited to try a bunch of new stuff. He's excited to do some stuff that I think that Jimmy would have probably never done, but still 
it's going to have that kind of like classic wild turkey DNA. And I'm just happy to be a part of it. Yeah. I mean, you've got your finger on the pulse. Like you see what's happening out there. You're on social media. You kind of talk us a little bit through like your creative process, because if you've got ideas and things you want to do, where does that start and how does that process lead? I think the most important thing you can do is listen because you never know who's going to tell you anybody could come up with like a great idea. And I've heard suggestions from the dude that stocks the shelves at some grocery store, liquor store. And he'd be like, it'd be really cool if you did that. And I'll think like, man, he's right. That would be cool if we did that thing. And so I think listening is probably the most important thing because I think when you work at a distillery, it's really easy to just get stuck in your head. We're going to do these same things. We're going to just take a 15-year-old whiskey and finish it in something cool and put it out at high enough proof to do non-chill filter and everybody's going to be happy. But to do something that really wows people, just listen. Because your consumers, now they're educated enough, they're going to tell you what they want. So I think you can take some of that. And then I think the next part of the process is getting with our team and then just kind of spitballing are any of these feasible? Because if we got to do what I wanted to do, our distillery would be destroyed because I'd want to make rye whiskey a lot more than our distillery can handle. It would make everybody really mad <laughs> and it would gunk up our equipment. Some of the best advice I got really from dad, as far as like the creative processes, don't ever take no for an answer. If you tell somebody you want to do something, they're like, no, be like, okay, well, let's figure out a way that we can do something like that in a way that works for everybody, right? And be like, I'll just go ask somebody else then and see if they can. Yeah, okay. Exactly. Yeah. Dad said, dad no, said I'm no, gonna go, go ask my mom. mom. <laughs> exactly. Well, exactly. it's funny because your dad's story about like when he was coming up at Wild Turkey, he thought his name was No all the time because Jimmy always told him no to everything he wanted to do. Yeah. So, you know. And Jimmy would never give him any answers. I mean, I love Mimi to death. He loves me to death. Maybe more than he loved dad because he's much nicer to me. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's how he was. No. Well, why do we do that? Because it tastes good, boy. You know, those are the answers dad got for the first 20 years of his career. Even when I started, like Jimmy's never been that way to me, thankfully, because dad's tougher than I am. It would have hurt my feelings when I first started. <laughs> I do think that it, the way that he taught dad really did help dad. But I think it influenced the way we all think about whiskey. Jimmy is very concerned with before it goes into the barrel because that's what he knows. He is so concerned with the consistency of everything until it goes into the barrel. And then most of his blends are pretty simple, right? Even Rare Breed, which was kind of like his craziest blend that he did that was a, a readily available product for his career. It was a 6, 8, and 12-year-old, but it was just 101 at three different ages, really, at Barrel Proof, where dad worked in a warehouse as a union worker for a long time. And so I think when you look at a lot of the stuff that dad's released, it's like, very maturation focused or blending focused. It's older. There's secondary maturation involved. Like even this rye bourbon blend we're doing, we took that rye and bourbon blend and we reintroduced it into those old rye barrels for a little while to get more of that rye. Like that's not something Jimmy would even thought of. In addition, Jimmy would probably, if your dad would have said the word blend, he probably would have slapped him because yeah, he hated, mingled. <laughs> yeah, he would always say he'd say mingling or marrying, but he yeah. thinks a uh, blend is a dirty word. It's funny because those old school distillers, they do they if there's an, a word that's popular in another industry, so like blending, obviously everybody knows is like a big term in Scotch. They do not want it to be called blending or like you'll taste something and there are tannins. There there is like a dry barrel aspect to the thing that the best word that you could use for me is like it's tannic or there's like some barrel tannins in there that are drying. You cannot say tannins at our distillery. Jimmy gets so angry. He's like, it's oak. It's oak. <laughs> Do you think there uh, is more, I guess, acceptance or potential with 
blending used to be a curse word, but to me, I think we think that the future that's the future of American whiskey because, I mean, it's great that you have your standard turkey recipe. It's great that you have that consistent product, but to me, what is exciting is blending all these different flavors to create something unique. Do you think the marketplace is ready? It still seems like we're a little early on that. People are still kind of like they love the Russell's thirteen. They like their like very traditional. Oh, it came from one warehouse or this distillery or this or that. It's so. Well, that's also kind of to go with their new Russell's branding that's becoming out of like a single location Russell's, right? Yeah. Something like that. I do think that we can start using those words though. And I don't think that Jimmy and them were wrong, to be honest. I think that the way that Jimmy and Elmer and Parker and Booker and Lincoln Henderson, all those kind of guys back in the day thought about their whiskey and the language that they would use. I think it was important because we didn't have an educated consumer. So you did not want to muddy the waters at all with anything. Mm-hmm. anything that could lose one customer was a big deal to them back then, right? Because they didn't have many. <laughs> Where today our consumers so educated, they know what you mean when you say blend. They know it doesn't mean it comes from, it's not like Scotland where it's coming from a bunch of different distilleries. Although I'd like to do some of that stuff too. I know a guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, like I was telling somebody the other day, they were like, what could you do if you could do anything in the world? And I was like, well, man, I, I'm a big fan of little Freddie over there at Beam, and it'd be super cool for us to do something together. We'll see if anything like that ever happens. But I think that now, I hope the companies realize that we need to, as Jimmy would say, like get while the getting's good because American whiskey is in an all-time peak. I mean, I'm sure you all think the same thing I do. Like, it's going to die here soon, right? It's, it's got to... been saying it, that for 10 years. And it, <laughs> it doesn't, uh, and it's not. And so now's the time to do it. We're at this awesome point in American whiskey history where there's so many people making good juice at small distilleries. Now they've caught up. There's a lot of small distilleries that are making awesome liquid. All the big boys are making great stuff. There's an excitement in our consumer base where we can put out really cool experimental things that are delicious and people are willing to get out there and drink it and buy it. I think we can like shoot for the moon in a way that we never could, even in the beginning of this kind of thing, it's like to poke fun at Fred a little bit, is the man that kind of caused the problem. Back then, it used to be like the nerdiest thing in the world to get a Henry McKenna. For fuck's sake. (laughs) (laughs) It always comes back to Henry McKenna. That's right. (laughs) Never knew. Unintended consequences. (laughs) But now it's like you running into somebody last night and I had somebody, this is when you know like, okay, maybe we jumped a shark. Last night, a guy we all know told me, he's like, you know, Ambarana barrels, they're a little played out now. (laughs) <laughs> it's like, I've got a new, more experimental wood. It's like 99.9% of the consumer base doesn't even know what that means, but okay, you know. And now's the time to do all that crazy stuff, though, I think. Well, I'd love to be able to see the innovation and the enthusiasm of embracing a lot of things. However, I've noticed there's one thing that you haven't embraced any change with, and that's the way that you still hammer out bungs during single barrels. That's right. <laughs> because oh, it's it's painful when I go and go to a single barrel with you and your dad and you're still pulling out the hammer and trying to hammer them all out. It's like, they make tools now that makes it so much easier to get these things out. They do. Um, <laughs> well, there is a little like romantic aspect, I think, to our barrel picks that doesn't exist with anybody else's barrel picks. Very true. Like, shouts out to Campari for not putting a lot of like money behind that part of the the program. And I'm not like poking fun at him because I think that's actually the smart thing to do. Because I think the best barrel picks are people that have figured out what their whole thing's about. I think they do an awesome job over at Fort Roses because you get to do all the recipes and stuff. And that's super unique to them. And for us, I, and there are many people that do, I had a great time at Maker's Mark here recently picking out a barrel. They do a great job there. Yeah. What I love about you all, it's almost like unstructured. 
Yeah, it is. You, you kind of go in and like, let's like, what it. are we going to try? I don't know. What do you want? You see anything over here that you like? Yeah, like, keep it simple, stupid, and everybody loves it. You know. Yeah, that's kind of what our whole our whole ethos is. Is like, what do you want to try? What whatever you see. Well, what's good? All of it. You tell me. <laughs> you know. Point what? of barrel. That one's got some good bird shit on it. Let's try that one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that the dead bird barrel. <laughs> it was good though. Yes. Yeah. I love the beating of the bungs. It's just like an old school thing I grew up with. I hate fooling with the power drill. Cause then you get like 40 plugs in the side of the barrel and you gotta work off all those meals too. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. It helps. It helps. And it's always fun to see somebody that thinks it's really easy and then I give it to them and they try to hit it twenty times and it doesn't move. And they're like, How are you doing that? You know? Yep. I was there when your dad handed me the hammer and I got haste pretty well. Yep. Yeah. I think he called me a weak pansy. It's always humbling. <laughs> it really is. doesn't move. It does. Yeah. It took me a while to figure it out. There are some tricks you can use, but always dad's much bigger than me, so he made it look very easy. <laughs> when they start handing out the barrel looking for somebody, I like turn my head. Like, don't pick me. How far away? <laughs> don't make eye contact. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bruce, it was awesome to have you on the show and kind of get to know more about you and more about your story. And we talked a lot about your dad as well as Jimmy. And it's just good to hear those stories because you are carrying on a legacy and you are helping build the brand and eventually be the face for this brand one day too. Yeah, I hope so. And it's one of these things, and I don't mean this against anybody else, but I don't trust anybody else to continue on what dad and Jimmy did. Wow. Like they're my heroes in a lot of ways. And I want to continue on what they've done in a way that, that I think that you can't do unless you know them. There's very few people that really know them and know kind of like, Really, kind of a lot of the sacrifices that they've made to to do this over the years, especially Jimmy. He toiled in that distillery for a very long time when nobody really cared about what he was doing or his liquid. And and he really believed in it in a way that's very easy to do now because there's so much money in the industry. But also, shouts out, my cousin Joanne's also in the industry. So it's not just me, dad, and Jimmy. My first cousin, Joanne, whose mom is kind of the reason we're all in this. The story back in the day that Jimmy doesn't tell that often is when he was 19 and my grandmother made him get a real job, as she said, at the distillery, she was pregnant with Joanne's mom. So shouts out to Aunt Kathy. She might be the reason that we're all in the industry today. <laughs> but I've got a, an amazing cousin who reps our brand up in New York and hopefully she'll be one of the faces of the brand because she has a completely different kind of outlook on the industry in a good way. Yeah. Well, very cool. And then if people want to follow more about you, I know you got an IG handle out there. Follow me on Russell's Raga. And I, I mean this, like, if you ever need anything from us, just hit me up, slip into the DMs or reach out to me via email. My email is bruce.russell at campari.com. That's um, dangerous. You want to put your phone no, number yeah. out there too? <laughs> no, you ain't get my number. Um, but like, if you've got questions, you want to come hang out at the distillery, you want to know when Jimmy, Jimmy's there today. He's there every Wednesday because my grandmother has a cleaning lady named Judy that comes and helps her and her and Jimmy don't get along. <laughs> so he has to come to work every Wednesday. That's the only day you know he'll be there. But yeah, hit me up. If you want to just come hang out in Louisville, I, I'll take you to some good spots. We'll drink some like 82 turkey or that Greek export that I was telling you about when I ran into your repeal, Fred. I just love sharing our stories and talking about dad and Jimmy and, and drinking good whiskey and and hanging out, so yep. hit me up. I'll DM you when you leave. Yeah, I was about to say, you just signed up for Slipping a bu- them DMs. boatload of uh, nights out in the next few years. Let's here, do so. it. I'll make you all try the uh, Malort on tap at Merriweather. Oh, oh God. <laughs> oh, let's end it there. So <laughs> with that, cheers, everybody. Stay with us again next week. And if you like the show, make sure you give it a nice little review and a rating. But with that, we'll see you all next week. Toodles. Baca sucks. Cheers. Cheers.